Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A Living History Production. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello and welcome to Battle Walks. Thank you for joining us again as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. Thank you for all the feedback you've been giving us and all the suggestions. And actually, this was one that came in via a suggestion that we're going to do today. It's the New Zealand Division, or part of the New Zealand Division, very late in the war. It's a very specific one, but it's a fascinating action. It's not an action that I know a huge amount about, so I will be relying fairly heavily on my talented co-host, Mr. Pete Smith. Pete, welcome back. Uh, Nice to be with you again, Matt. So the New Zealanders, mate, I've got huge respect for the New Zealanders in the First World War because they were some tough fighters. Again, they came from, well, they came from even further away than the Australians in many respects. And the New Zealanders seem to get on with the job uh, in a very humble way, compared to people like Australia and Canada and America that claim that we won the war, New Zealand is probably the only uh, the only group that I've seen that hasn't com- that hasn't claimed that their uh, their their little one division turned the tide of the First World War. But they still did some pretty amazing stuff throughout the war, didn't they? They certainly did, and uh, I've always had a um, quite a tight connection with them. Our uh, bed and breakfast, when I ran a bed and breakfast here, sadly now closed, uh, was called Otago View, and that's because we sit very firmly on the battlefields uh, in 1916. And literally, our house, where our house stands, was taken by the New Zealanders or retaken by the New Zealanders uh, on the 15th of September in, in 1916. So uh, we've always had, uh, always had uh, quite a few New Zealand uh, clients coming and staying in the in the property. Where we're talking about today is right at the end of the war, November 1918, in fact, one of the most important New Zealand sites. Now, the let's talk about the name to begin with. The <laughs> the English direct reading of the name would be Le Quesnoy. 
Yep. And But I don't think a French person would have any clue what you're talking about if you pronounced it like that. Well, I have to say, uh, in the very early days when we first arrived here and decided to call uh, our house, uh, uh, or call, call it uh, and attract New Zealanders here, I had a chap uh, sitting at the table uh, over breakfast and he was telling me that he was going to a place called Le Quinoa. And I was nodding very kind of as if I knew exactly what I was talking about. And I thought, I have no idea where this place is. I'm supposed to be a battlefield historian. I just don't know where Le Quinoa is. And then he passed a, a sheet of documents across. And on the top, it said Le Quesnoy. And I thought, aha, Le Quesnoy. That's how you say it, Le Quinoa. So that's how I discovered that the uh, the pronunciation is Le Quinoa. But it looks like an anglicised version, Le Quesnoy. <laughs> I'd love to know what the New Zealanders referred to it as during the war because they, uh, they you know, the, the troops of the First World War were the ultimate humorous manglers of, of French names. I have no idea what they would have done with this one. I think it was almost certainly called Quesnoy by most of them, I suspect. <laughs> well, before we get started, Pete, maybe we should talk a little bit about the New Zealanders in general during the First World War because a pretty proud history, obviously alongside the Australians for some of the time. But for a lot of the time, they were independent as well. So, you know, obviously formed and went off to Gallipoli uh, in the early stages of the war. But what about by the time they came to the Western Front? What were some of the great battles the New Zealanders are famous for in France and Belgium? Well, I think the, the most important, I suppose, location for me would be uh, my village, would be the fighting on the 15th of September. Um, and it is, I think, perhaps uh, one of their greatest battles, actually. Uh, their first time in serious combat. Uh, they'd served in the nursery area along with everybody else. They'd, in fact, uh, the stretcher bearers especially had been at Fromel. But this was really their first uh, independent divisional action, uh, taking the village of Flair. And they did a very good job, I have to say. It was uh, it was a very successful action. They supported both the divisions on the right and left that were having problems, as well as holding their own their own ground. So I always view this as a very important uh, action for them. But of course, they took an absolute pounding at Passchendaele, uh, sadly. They're also pretty active at Messine um, with the uh, Australians and the Brits in up in Belgium um, leading into uh, the, the Third Battle of Ypres. The New Zealanders actually took the town. And it's it's something... I, I When you visit the battlefields, every country has a different way of remembering its, um, its soldiers. But the, I like what the New Zealanders have done. Australia sort of tends to group its remembrance in... in specific areas of concentration but the New Zealanders decided that they were going to remember all their lost men in particular on the battlefields where they fell so it's it's extraordinary the number of times you'll be just pottering around the western front and come across a beautiful New Zealand memorial with a list of names maybe only a couple of hundred names but a list of names of of the of the missing from that sector and it is re- it does really paint a, a a fascinating perspective of what the Kiwis did and how far they fought across the western front uh, and also the memorials with that fascinating and, and moving inscription from the uttermost ends of the earth. So I think the New Zealanders really have done it well. And there's there's memorials to the missing at Messine. There's one at Polygon Wood, where they where they occupied the sector in 1918. Um, Passchendaele, of course. And so you just have these these little memorials on key locations, and it really does paint a, a, a great picture of just what the New Zealanders got up to during the war. Yep, there's there's one here, uh, just uh, in uh, Caterpillar Valley Cemetery. Uh, there's another one close for the fighting in 1918, a place called Grevillier. Uh, they have another one there, Memorial to the Missing. And, of course, they have one in the centre of Armentieres as well. 
in City Bonjean uh, Cemetery. They have a memorial to the missing. So I think it's it's always nice, and it, and it adds that extra bit of information, I suppose, to go and look at a memorial that is in the heart of of the battlefields where they fought and died. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the uh, the New Zealand memorial here uh, overlooks uh, this house, so we can see it from almost all of our windows and the garden, looking up onto the ridge beyond. And in fact, that's why we called our house Otago View. It's it's the view that the Germans had of the Otago. Uh, regiment, the battalion, as it cleared the ridge and came into the view and so started getting hit by the machine guns which were firing from our house. Our house was a a German strong point. So yeah, I've always had a a big connection to the New Zealanders here. If you were lucky enough to go to the Western Front for Anzac Day, which all of our Australian and New Zealand listeners will hopefully do one day, uh, but if you were to go to the Australian uh, Anzac Day services, that would take place, of course, at the National Memorial at Villas Bretno. But the New Zealanders, interestingly, have their main memorial spread on two sites, effectively, because they've got the memorial in the Somme at Longueval. Um, But then, of course, they've also got this other place that we're talking about today, which was, even though a small action by the standards of the First World War, even by the standards of what was going on in November 1918, very, very important to the New Zealanders. It was the last action they took part in, wasn't it, Pete? It was the last big action. I mean, they will continue on for a couple of days. And it is right at the end of the war. It's the 4th of November. So we are literally at the end of the war. 11th of November, the armistice is going to be signed. Um, So they've got a few more days. But yeah, this is... And and it's it's an important action, only in the sense that it was just them. It was just the New Zealanders. And they're taking a whole fortified town. And that's what we're going to be talking about. So a a very interesting and, and important action in the last days of the war. And this is a long way away, isn't it? This is not in the heart of the Somme or this is way off to the east, you know, because the Germans were being pushed back so far. It's like this phase for the Australians. I mean, the Australians weren't fighting this late in the war. The infantry, that is, had had been withdrawn in October. Um, But some of the last battlefields for the Australians are a hell of a long way away from the the key sites you would normally visit in the Somme and in Ypres and, and, uh, you know, in in Flanders. Uh, This is the same, isn't it? Well, this is almost getting as far away as you can get because we're only, say, four days from the armistice. So we're we're literally, um, or four or five days from the armistice, we are literally right at the end of the war. And the New Zealanders have been basically fighting for 77 days. They were 77 days, part of the 100 days, the 100 days that will eventually end the war. Well, 77 of those 100 days they they were fighting. And they they travelled uh, um, fifty six miles. So they travelled fifty six miles. What's that in kilometres? I haven't done my conversion today. But anyway, whatever it is, it's it's about eighty odd kilometres. It's a long way. Yeah, it's a long way. Anyway, yeah. And so uh, yeah, they uh, and they they led that on on foot on foot under fire as yep, well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have to remember that's exactly. Not, yeah. That's not a, that's yeah. not on a bus or a stroll across the countryside. That's it, fighting it, across it the country. It is every single day fighting. So 77 days of, of hard uh, hard fighting. Yeah. Well, it's little wonder they remember it so fondly. Let's let's talk a little bit about the town and where it's located and how the New Zealanders came to be here. Well, it's right on the on the the extremities of France. Really, it's it's very very nor- northern France. Um, it's a walled town, and that's why we're, we're, what we're going to be talking about. And just to give you a kind of a mental image of it, I'm sure most of you will have seen photographs of Ypres and the ramparts around Ypres. Well, that was a Vauban fortification. Well, this is also a Vauban fortification, but the ramparts around Ypres have either been dismantled or were damaged and then rebuilt, but they're not complete. Well, these almost are complete so it's a complete walled city uh, on the on the edge of uh, of france and uh, the nearest big town if you're looking for it on the map is valenciennes 
Um, that is the nearest town. That is right on the border with Belgium. So that's the nearest big town. It's now called Haute de France, so High France, uh, uh, but it's in the uh, Department du Nord, the northern department of France. And the Germans were obviously just trying to hold on to this. I assume as a walled city, it gave them some sense of protection and was it was an area they could hold. So how did the New Zealanders come to be, uh, to, to be given the task of attacking La Quinoa? Well, I think it's just luck. It's just it's directly, if you draw a line, really, from, um, I suppose, uh, from Bapum, which is their first action of the 100 days, and you draw a direction in the same way they're going. They're travelling the same way. It's, it's northeast, uh, slightly northeast, uh, for, to the end of the war. And if you draw that straight line, then that's the direction they're going. And right slap bang in the middle of it, will uh, towards the end, will be uh, La Quinoa. So it's, uh, they were just... Uh, Lucky or unlucky that it was, uh, it's going to be allocated to them to take. And in fact, I think, I think a lot of the men would see it as lucky. They they felt they wanted to have one last crack at uh, at the at the Germans and at capturing something uh, substantial. They're not alone. They've got British divisions on both sides. Um, so it's uh, but the actual taking of the town itself is going to be left to the New Zealand division. Well, walk us through, Pete how the New Zealanders went, how the attack unfolded and, and the obviously the success that the New Zealanders had overcoming the Germans. It's such a historic town, is Lakinwell, before we start talking about the New Zealanders, that uh, I think for anybody, you need to do a little bit of history and reading about it before you go, because it is an absolutely fascinating place. It has been fought over for forever. Um, I was trying to count the number of times that it was uh, destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and taken and changed. And you have to say that it uh, it wasn't... Um, it, for a long, long time, it is actually part of, well, either the Spanish Netherlands or, or the Flemish region. So it's not even part of France for a very long time. So it's a, it is a, a fascinating place to, uh, to go, and, uh, go and look at. It didn't become French permanently until 1659, just as a one figure to throw in. So let's think about the date. So it's the 4th of November 1918. It's towards the end of the war. And the New Zealanders are faced with uh, with trying to take this town. And there are several issues connected with it. The first one is they know there's a German garrison in there. And the first thing they're going to try and do is to persuade the guys to surrender. So to do that, what do you have to do? Well, they thought they, they'll try and surround the town. So that's what the attack's going to be about to start off with. Hopefully they're going to take the town without any fighting other than the fighting around it. So that's where we get the first uh, uh, fighting. So I'll just start reading some notes. On the morning of the 4th of November in 1918, at 5.30, a series of explosions woke the townspeople. Now, these explosions are caused by uh, 300 oil bombs. And these are, I suppose, uh, big containers filled with oil. And they're going to cause fire and smoke. And they're going to be land. They're going to land on top of the Vauban defences. So why are they going to do that? Well, it's because of the civilian population. There's at least 3,000 civilians. They're not sure how many, but there's at least 3,000, uh, potentially 3,000 uh, civilians within the town, and they don't want to kill them. So they're going to drop most of their projectiles on the actual uh, the defences around the town, these Vauban defences, the ramparts and the, uh, and the fortifications, and not drop any into the town itself. So we started with these oil bombs, 300 of them, fired by living I just want to say, Pete, it's all... Yeah. It's all very medieval, isn't it? The the whole concept of, of of big walls and a siege and boiling oil. Even it's 
It's all we're, we're harking back to the Middle Ages. It is, and that's what it felt like. And and some of the men who were assaulting in the New Zealand division, who'd read any kind of history, felt that right the way from the start that this was. And you you only have to, as we're going to, we're going to walk around the town. When you stand outside the ramparts looking up, it is rather daunting to say the least. How the heck? If we're not going to destroy the town and we're not going to blow great holes and everything, how on earth are we going to get through these fortifications, which were rightly up to the 19th century, had been improved and improved and improved and then eventually abandoned and they become, uh, well, they become walkways, they become uh, pretty walks, as did the fortifications at Eep. Uh, people will, will walk around the top of the walls um, and relax, so... No, so it's it's yeah very daunting to be assaulting something in in the old style you don't you would almost say. So they're now going to drop uh, mortars, uh, mortar rounds from both the Livens projectors firing the the, uh, the the flame bombs, and then mortar rounds, medium uh, trench mortars, going to be firing uh, onto these uh, onto the ramparts, and then they're going to start going uh, left and right around the town itself uh, to try and uh, seal it off. 37th Division is on the right, uh, that's a British division, and the 62nd West Riding Division on the left, and they will support, but it's the New Zealanders who are tight to the to the city. It's going to go unbelievably well. Uh, they have a blue, green, and red objectives, and as you can imagine, the red is the final objective, and this attack starts at 5.30, and by 11.56, still in the morning, they've captured all their objectives but what they haven't taken is the town itself. So we've gone all the way around it. So this is when we start asking, uh, would you like to surrender? And the answer from the, the Germans is nothing to start off with. So they send in a party of captured Germans to go and uh, hand over a request to surrender. Nothing happens at all. Um, and that was at 11 o'clock. At uh, 3 o'clock, they try again. And again, no response uh, whatsoever. Um and then eventually a German comes out and he admits that the, the men themselves would like to surrender, but the officers are not going to let them. So I'm afraid it's a no. The final attempt is they drop in uh, leaflets uh, from the air. So they're using uh, aircraft to drop in uh, leaflets and still know that they're not, they're not, going, to, uh, not going to surrender. So they're going to have to attack. Well... What we've done, where we are at the moment, we've driven into the main uh, the square and we've parked up the car and uh, it's General Leclerc, but it's now called uh, Place de Cambridge as well. You'll find a dual naming, a lot of it relative to New Zealand, and this is where we're going to actually start our walking tour is from the, the town square. So we're standing in the town square at the at the moment. Interestingly, nice little bar in the town square. They do uh, food as well, so it's uh, I always point these things out. And they've got a toilet, always helpful to know where they are. So right in, in the centre of the of the town. And to get here, we've driven uh, over one of the bridges and uh, the routes in the old routes into the town. So we've actually already seen some of the ramparts to to get here. Um, Pete, it's a it's an exciting story as you're telling this. I'm like, it's it's one of those gripping tales from the from the First World War. Just you know, as you're telling that story very um very well, I'm I'm sitting here going, so what you know. Did the Germans surrender? Did the New Zealanders have to attack? And, and you know, it, I tell you what, it would have been a tough gig to be a German machine gunner in the town willing to surrender, but now knowing you're going to have to fight and, and potentially die in a town that you were happy to give up, especially when you knew the war was effectively over. Without spoiling the story, I think that's partly 
the story of the town. The Germans put up a rudimentary, and don't think they didn't kill anybody, they killed quite a, a large number of New Zealanders who were attacking. But you get to a point where you think, if I fight on much longer, then I'm not going to be taken prisoner. And it's something that all soldiers know. And I think the Germans realised that if they fought on for very much longer... Uh, along these ramparts, then there was a potential that none of them would be taken uh, taken prisoner, and so I think the Germans played a very clever game of doing enough to to look like they put up a proper defence of the town and probably please their officers, and then they were off basically. Um, and New so- Zealand, uh, the New. The New Zealanders had a reputation as well by this stage as being pretty ferocious fighters. They they weren't big on uh, well well done well played well played chap. Let's go and have a quiet beer. Yeah, prisoner taking was not one of their better forties either. I don't think so. Uh, yeah, yeah, and certainly here for the fighting here right at the start of their experience, uh, the Germans actually complained uh, via the uh, International Red Cross that the New Zealanders had not been taking prisoners. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so, so, yes, I think the Germans knew because they kept a book on everybody, uh, literally, on, uh, on what they thought of you and how you fought. And so with the New Zealanders, I suspect they knew what was coming if they, if they fought on too long. So let's head off on our walk. We're going to leave the square and just... just Imagine looking around you. This is quite beautiful, apart from the buildings right in the heart of the town around the square. And sadly, it's the flipping Second World War again. Now, there's a lot of this town which is which is very beautiful, old uh, buildings going right the way back to the Middle Ages. Uh, but here in the town square, it's 1950s concrete. Uh, some of the buildings here, including the bar I've just said that is a nice bar to go into. It's a nice bar inside, but it's not so pretty on the outside. Um They've been doing a bit of work in recent years to try and make uh, make these buildings look more attractive, but 1950s concrete buildings, rebuilt buildings in the 1950s, are not attractive buildings. And sadly, we have a little ring of uh, of those uh, around the around the square. But outside of the main square, it, it, it improves. And we're going to head to the Hotel de Ville, which is uh, the town hall. Uh, and this is a beautiful building. And before we get there, we're going to walk past. Uh, the um, the war memorial. So this is the uh, the town war memorial that we're we're going to walk past, and uh, there is a mention on there of the New Zealanders. And basically, it is um, paraphrasing here, but it is basically saying that uh, thanking the New Zealanders for uh, saving their city in 1918. So there's uh, there's already um, an, uh, a, a memorial in their their town memorial, which commemorates their dead from both the first and the and the second world war. Um, the belfry of the town hall has a very interesting uh, history in its own right. Uh, it, it was built originally in 1583, destroyed in 1794. I have actually no idea what war that would have been. 1794. Oh, it might have been destroyed. That's uh, French Revolution. Uh, Austrians. I think it's. I think it's the F- a French Revolutionary Army fighting the Austrians because the Austrians took advantage of France being in turmoil during the revolution and. It's decided to invade, so I think that's the date, 1794. 1918, so it's it's badly damaged during this fighting because it was it was a tall tower. And again, sadly, exactly the same reason, 1940. Tall towers tend to get a pounding. So the belfry had been rebuilt. It's got 48 bells. They can't be big bells. I was looking at it when I, when I realised 48 bells. If these are big bells, then it wouldn't work. So they must be quite small bells. But 48 bells in the, in the belfry. And in fact, I think I've heard it uh, peeling out uh, several times when I've been there. So we're going to go past the, uh, the town hall, turn right, and we're going to go down Marshal uh, Joffrey. Uh, do you say that, Joffrey or Joffre? How do you say it, Matt? 
I think the French would say Joffre. Yeah, but uh, Joffrey. Uh, I think our Anglization again. Of, uh, I, I like to cut that use both, both my fluent French <laughs> and uh, the Anglicised. Um, or, so, or sometimes even somewhere in the middle. Yeah, which exactly. I think works really well <laughs> yeah, that's actually probably the most common for me. Um, and uh, the, again, dual naming. It's called Helen Clark. Uh, the road here. Uh, she was. Is she still? No, she's not. She was the premier, wasn't no, she? She was the, the, the yeah, prime, prime minister of New Zealand yeah. for for a long time. Yeah, um, and so it must have been in the period uh, during the commemorations, uh, possibly ninetieth. They did an awful lot of of commemorations for the ninetieth. Didn't didn't get there for the hundredth because I was too busy uh, with the Australian battlefields. But ninetieth, I was there. I believe her uncle or great uncle was mm. served, or indeed was probably killed. I think in the First World War. She has a very Helen Clark always had a very strong connection yep. to. The, the First World War because of her family. Uh, and uh, so particularly leading up to the centenary, she was very uh, very active in promoting the New Zealand interests yeah. in the in the Western Front. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm going to call it, uh, we're walking down uh, the Helen Clark uh, Road uh, towards one of the gateways out. <laughs> now, if you're reading the notes, Matt, you'll know that I'm coming up to a word that I have absolutely no hope of pronouncing. So this is port, which means a gateway. So this is one of the gateways, Farolux. Farolx. Oh, Lord knows. <laughs> That's what it looks like, anyway. Uh, and we're, going... we're, really, we're really outdoing ourselves at this podcast, Pete. With yeah. <laughs> our I'll... tour of France. I'll tell you what I'm going to have to do next time, because uh, on the on the right-hand side, just before we get to the gateway, is the tourist office, so I should stick my head in there and say, how do you say this? Uh, perhaps I'll do that next time uh, we're there. Um, and so this is actually, interestingly, one of the only gateways not to be damaged during World War Two because the gateways were very badly damaged. You can imagine, start off with tanks, can't get through the small gateways gateways uh, and uh, and I think a lot of the, the the Germans would have destroyed any any gateway because they viewed gateways as not a good thing if you're trying to take a place so this is the only one that survives and it's it's an excellent uh, very uh, beautiful gateway a lot of this town is very very beautiful so we're going to walk out a little further and we're going to have to turn around and come back but we're going to walk out across the moat there's a bridge here going across the moat Onto the outer defences, because here we have layers of defensive, great big walls, inner defences, but there's great big walls on the outer defences and a moat in between in some of the areas. And this is a very wide, it's almost a lake rather than a moat here. And we're going to cross that and go and look at the outer defences, turn around and look back at the city and you get a really good view of the of, of the town uh, from the uh, the outer defences. And then we're going to walk back in again, back under the uh, the gateway and we're going to turn left. Uh, and walk up a slope, or you can go up the stairs, whichever you want to do, up onto the top of the ramparts. Now, th- this is, I can't understate how spectacular it is and how different it is to the very well organised and manicured walkway around Ypres. If you're going to Ypres and look at the Vauban defences there, manicured, beautiful walkways. These are not that. These are rough tracks on top of the uh, on top of the walls and. I have to say, I do not take my children onto the top of these walls because there is no fence whatsoever on your left-hand side. And when the grass is a bit slippy, it wouldn't take a great deal to start sliding down the bank and straight over the edge. And it's about 30 or 40 foot over the edge, so you really don't want to take your children up here. Um, but it's uh, it's exceptional. The views back into the town are great and the views out uh, to uh, the fields, open fields beyond... And sometimes the town, the town has spread a little beyond the, uh, the the rampart, so we get both. And in fact, on on this side, the left hand side, as we're looking out from the or straight ahead, depending on which way you're walking, but in the direction of our travel, if you look to the left, you can see some lakes, and these lakes actually fed 
the uh, the moats to make sure you could you could spread them. So in time of war, you could spread the moats, fill them with water, make them even wider. So these lakes were used for that, and they're on our left hand side. So very beautiful. This is uh, a lovely area. And we're going to uh, to walk along uh, the, these uh, these uh, ramparts, these walls, until we get to the first bastion. It's Bastion Vert. Oh, I can say that word. Bastion Green, that means. My French is fantastic. Um, and this is the first of the bastions where the guns would be. And very cleverly designed. This is a star-shaped fort. And so it means that on these bastions, you could fire to the side and you would enfilade anybody trying to attract, uh, attack the walls. And of course, this is exactly what the Germans are doing. It still works. A machine gun, a, a, a mortar, an artillery piece, because they even had 77mm guns on the uh, on, up on the, the ramparts. Superb. So this, this is what we're, we're up against. Uh, the New Zealanders are going to be up against. So this is one of the bastions, and it's the first one. Um, and so, Pete, I've got to ask. Yeah, it sounds it's such an obstacle. These walls. How in the hell did the New Zealanders tackle it without destroying them? Ladders, ladders. So we're going straight back to the medieval again. So it's ladders. Now I've been trying to find out. I remember reading at some stage in the past, probably many years ago, that the ladders were from the orchards that they were passing through as they approached the town because they suspected this was going to happen, but they realised that they still weren't big enough. And so they had to literally join ladders together or make them. So it's the pioneer sections within the battalions who are and the engineers who are trying to manufacture ladders that are going to be big enough, long enough, to get up the walls. And when you look, you realise these are like fireman's ladders. These are going to be humongous ladders. And remember, these guys are going to have to attack under fire to try and get these ladders up against the walls. And that's going to be part of the story. But that is literally what they're going to do. So it's uh, it's just extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. And the casualties were fairly heavy in the attempt to get the ladders in place. Um, and this is going on really most of that afternoon, that that late afternoon, as they realise that they have to, they have got to take the town, that they're trying to get ladders in place so that men can get up there. And there's an awful lot of scouting ahead, people trying to scout ahead and and spot where there's a potential to uh, to cross the moat in some in places. And in fact, where they are going to be successful, we're going to get there in a little while, where they're going to be successful is where they can cross over on top of a, almost like a lock gate to get close to the wall and then get the ladders up there alongside the wall. But we'll come to that in, in, just, in a little while. Just extraordinary. Oh, it is just extraordinary. extraordinary. It is extraordinary. Bravery of the highest order. It, it, it is. And, and the guys that actually eventually got over the wall were not fired at. That's what the extraordinary and slightly odd thing is. They've been fighting. The Germans have been fighting and fighting and fighting and firing mortars and snipers and gr- lobbing grenades over the wall. And yet the section of the wall that these uh, these two officers eventually managed to get up and, and get onto the top of the ladder, um, they were not fired at and will climb right the way on without being fired at at all. Um, and you uh, and they then spot two abandoned machine guns. And, you, and this is when you get this feeling that the Germans felt that they'd done enough. They knew they were cut off. They knew that they were going to be taken prisoner. And I think that's what they wanted. So they didn't continue fighting. And Because if they had... You can imagine these two officers getting shot off the walls, more and more trying. When they got into the town, there would be mayhem. They would not have taken uh, taken any, any any prisoners. So so it's an interesting action. But anyway, on with the walk. We'll just uh, go a little bit further before we reach this, uh, this uh, location. 
So we're going to carry on walking. Just want to quickly talk about this. We're going to drop down off the wall again uh, to uh, uh, it's another uh, bastion area, um, and but it's also as we drop off the walls, it's where for a long time New Zealand has been looking to do something here to enhance the, the New Zealand visitors' experience. And like the Sir John Monash Centre, which is a superb uh, resource for Australians visiting the battlefields, they wanted to build a small museum, um, a, a, a visit center and and perhaps even a, a hotel that would that would be designed for new zealand battlefield tourists now i have to explain all of that a little bit this is so far off the normal battlefield for your average battlefield visitor and this is the big problem with la quinoa most battlefield visitors will not come go here i, I wouldn't take a casual visitor here it generally speaking they are new zealanders who want to go there because they know all about it and, and they would do it is a famous action in new zealand but your average battlefield visitor probably hasn't heard of it and wouldn't want to go anywhere because it would take a whole day of his uh, of his tour or his time here uh, out when you can see you know 30 40 kind of battlefield locations on the Somme or around deep whereas he'll just go there visit that perhaps uh, uh, might even go somewhere else uh, we're not that far away from um Lakato, so maybe you go to Lakato or Mons as well, and sometimes you can tie it in with those too. But it's a long way off the off the normal battlefield. Um, so this area that that we're just standing in, uh, it's called uh, there's a chateau here called Marguerite de Bourgogne, um, and uh, it's a very famous uh, chateau, all very run down. I have to say, I, I looked at these only about I suppose a year ago now, last time I was there, and um, very run down and looking like they desperately need to be renovated. And uh, but thankfully there were there were some builders there, so hopefully these are are slowly going to be renovated. Some of these old buildings, but it's in this area that New Zealand was hoping to build uh, some kind of visitor centre I, I don't think it's going to happen too many things have happened since uh, the last New Zealanders came here looking at bu- uh, uh, putting a building up here and developing it uh, the earthquakes and then Covid and everything else that's going on in the world I can't see it but we'll, we'll live in hope that something will be, will be built here so we're going to rejoin the ramparts again, and we're going to be travelling up uh, Avenue uh, de New Zealanders. Uh, so uh, again, a name uh, very relevant, and uh, passing through Bastion Dugard, and then through a sally port. A sally port is a doorway uh, facing out to your enemy, so it's where normally soldiers could run out and do a bit of fighting, then run back in again behind the walls. So out through a sally port, uh, and over the moat to the outer walls. And then we're going to walk along the outer walls a little while. And what we get is now a real idea of what a New Zealand soldier um, from the 4th Rifles, one of the, the attacking, the attacking battalion, would have seen as he cleared the uh, first lot of defences and had to cross the moat to try and get his ladders up against, uh, against the wall. And they did take quite heavy casualties in, in doing that. But eventually we will have success. And that's partly due to the man who will actually... St- climb the walls himself second lieutenant lcl uh, avril mc will be awarded the mc um and he's the intelligence officer uh, for the fourth rifles and he will spot the location and then he will lead his men uh, up, up the walls there and eventually into the uh, into the town itself uh, and the walls will be breached at uh, 1600 four o'clock is when they successfully breach them what I'm going to do now is I'm going to just read uh, an account, his account of uh, of that breach uh, of that breaching. So this is the account of Second Lieutenant uh, L.C.L. Uh, Avril, M.C. 
The time was approximately midday on the 4th of November 1918 and we still had not gained entrance to Le Quinoa. We were however making progress and the German firepower from the walls had lessened. There were two outlying bastions, fortunately the possibility of wall climbing had been foreseen and a ladder had been provided by the engineers. The CO was anxious these bastions should be explored and so with five or six men I put the ladder against the wall and we climbed it and drew up the ladder behind us. These are the outer defences he's talking about here. We took the ladder down on the third uh, and sloping grassy side of the first bastion only to find a similar fortification straight ahead. So this is the the main bastion that they got to uh, overcome. Ahead of us, the wall climbing of the second bastion had to be repeated, and from the top of this outlying ramp, I could see that we could now approach the main and final wall of this well fortified town. So, actually, it wasn't the final one, that's another bastion. So, he's gone over two walls already. The 30 foot ladder was too short to uh, reach from the bottom of the moats to the top of the final wall, but there was one place where the ladder could be placed to reach the top. This was on a narrow stone bridge about a foot wide which spanned the moat and was connected with a sluice gate. After crossing this bridge and sluice gate, a narrow ledge ran for some 10 yards beside the wall to an arched opening giving entrance to the town. Now this is all there now and in fact we're going to cross it. Once we've read this account we will actually walk across this little bridge and up to the uh, the gateway giving entrance to the town, but which, needless to say, had been completely blocked by the enemy to deny us access through the wall. It was only on this narrow wall above the sluice gate that the ladder could reach the top. So we're now that's his, his account, and we're now going to uh, uh, have a look at um, uh, an account that was uh, uh, by the Divisional History. It's written in the Divisional History. The whole place was ominously still for the gurgle of water in the moat below them, Quietly they raised the ladder against the wall. It reached the top of the bricks with a foot to spare, resting against a two-foot grassy bank which crammed the rampart. Two of the riflemen steadied the ladder on its secure, insecure perch, and Avril started to mount it, telling the others that he would shout down to them if the top, from the top if all was quiet. Avril quickly reached the top of the brickwork and stepped over the coping onto the grassy bank. Crouching behind it, he peered over it. And it says here, it was one of the most dramatic moments in the divisional's history. And you can imagine it would be. That tension must have been unbelievable, knowing that there was a potential of half a dozen machine guns pointing at them. There was an instant crashing through some brushwood on the far side, and Avril saw two Germans of the bombing post running off panic-stricken. He sent two revolver bullets after them. Kerr, who was another officer who was with him, was now on the topmost rung and the two officers could see a pair of machine guns on the salient on the right, pointing into the moat but abandoned. They stood up and walked over the grass slope and down the other side towards the boulevard. Avril recalled that the Germans soon, he describes it as threw up the sponge, he means that they uh, they, sur- they started surrendering. After being under the heel of the Hun for f- four years, the delight of the people of uh, Le Quinoa on being free again knew no bounds. Um, so we know the Germans uh, very quickly surrendered. They, they uh, 
poured out of uh, the underground chambers. This had underground chambers everywhere because it had been fortified for such a long time. And very quickly, uh, they were rounded up by the New Zealanders as they now poured over on this ladder and then opened up the way for the main uh, the main entrances to be opened up and, and more men could come in that way. I'm just going to read one uh, quick account by a, a private soldier who was there, a chap called Reg Haird. He sent this letter to his girlfriend, Nellie Dean, in Collingwood. At 5.30am, every man was at his post and the barrage opened up. It was a barrage, just one mighty crash. I never heard anything like it before. The ground shook and trembled and the bursting shells lit the ground up. It was like hell let loose. Now, you have to remember, this is all on the ramparts, not on the town. Volunteers were called for... Uh, men to place long ladders against the wall for the storming party to get over. Well, I volunteered for one, and I had a good mate. The smoke screen was intensified, and we slipped down into the moat and got almost to the foot of the wall when he spotted us and opened uh, out on us from the top of the wall with machine guns and rifles, and not more than 40 feet from our heads. How on earth we did not uh, uh, kill the pair... They did not kill the pair of us, I don't know. He tore the ground up at our feet but we placed a ladder and took off for our lives. It was lucky for us that he had to shoot down at us and not straight at us, else Napu. We got behind the angle in the wall and dashed back into the thick screen and got back safely after a severe uh, flight. Um, we had won the inner ramparts and were faced by another moat on the walls of the citadel. It was just about 12 o'clock now and we had a bit of a spell for a while. But by four o'clock, we had got a footing on the walls of the citadel and after a sharp fight, had captured the whole garrison of 2,000 men. Um, it was one of the greatest feats yet done by the New Zealand troops. We marched up the city square and it was a splendid reception that we got from the civilian population. So a really interesting report. So he's not actually involved in the final rush to clear the walls. His job was to get the ladders up against the walls so that the uh, the men could get over. So you can see, can't you? Can't you? It, it was it was a just a fascinating action, and it and it has that massively medieval feel about it. I, again, Pete, I said this before, but the the balls required to grab those ladders and run in under machine gun fire. Interesting. He was saying that it was lucky they were shooting down. Because obviously he's referring to the fact that the bullets coming straight down, it was harder to hit the men than yeah. it would have been if they were firing at, firing at ground level. But gee, that would have been a, a hell of an adventure to run forward with those ladders. I think what's interesting as well is a lot of these men by now would be used to night fighting because most of the fighting at this period in 1918 was was done in the dark. The best advances or the great advances were, were night advances or dawn advances. So this is the middle of the afternoon. So this is very different. This is broad, broad daylight that they're actually operating in. So the New Zealanders spill over the wall and obviously throw open the gates so that the, the rest of their men can join them. Yeah. Um, and uh, as you said, the Germans surrendered. Let's uh, let's continue walking around the town and exploring these sites. Well, the, ne- the next thing we're going to come to, and it's just literally, it's just uh, le- less than 10 paces further up, is the actual memorial that's been placed here. And it's very different to what we described earlier, the obelisks and the memorials to the missing. Uh, this is a, a plaque on the wall, and it's literally on the spot where they, they went over the wall. And it is a depiction in stone. It's it's a bas-relief of, of men climbing the ladders and going over the wall. 
Um, above them, uh, you have uh, uh, Victory looking uh, looking down and holding a, her, her wreath, uh, and then we have palms uh, and uh, and fern leaves. Uh, so it's a it's a, a beautiful uh, memorial and a great a great thing to look at because you're positioned opposite on the on the other side on the the first set of ramparts, looking across and uh, yeah, great a great place. And a lot of this is is very very beautiful, and uh, and this is no no different. Um, even better, we can now cross the, the Sluicegate Bridge, as did the soldiers who put up the ladder. Um, so it's exactly the same one. It's not changed. It's not changed at all. So we can we can c- cross that and uh, and literally get a better view of what it was like being s- s- literally under the walls and about to climb up the ladders to get on top of the walls. Um, we're going to go th- just walk through the ramparts, through the Sally Gate, and then turn around and come back out because we want to remain on the outside of the walls uh, to continue continue the walk. So. On we go, uh, and we're going to then uh, um, cross over onto the uh, onto the the other side, uh, walking around the the outside uh, of the of the walls, and and this is one of the areas where uh, they came under really really heavy fire. That fighting I was talking about when they're trying to get the ladders up. So this is where the second and fourth rifles were pinned down and taking heavy casualties whilst trying to get the ladders uh, up. So I always have a stop here and look back. And again, you get a good view of what it would be like to come round from these ramparts and suddenly be faced by, literally at this point, by machine guns and trench mortars and grenades, and you're trying to get up uh, your ladders up against the uh, against the wall. And so, it's not perhaps I have to say I underestimated this action for a long time. I thought, oh, that was easy, just getting over the walls. Well, it is. That last final bit was easy, but it was getting to that point that was that was well, easy. That's not a good word, but it was it wasn't as dangerous as it could have been because nobody was actually shooting at them as they climbed over the walls. But uh, yeah, prior to that, it had been very dangerous and uh, very deadly for an awful lot of uh, of men. Um, so we're going to uh, we're going to then walk round to another another entrance. It's called Port Saint Martin, and this is one of the main roads into the town. Well, they're not main roads; it's just the traffic. This is a, an actual road, so traffic is coming in through the town here. And here you can see battle damage from both uh, 1918, the fighting that we're discussing, and also 1940 on the stone outer walls. So you can see where shells have, have hit the walls. And this this archway, the once would have been a bridge over the road, has gone. Uh, it's been uh, very badly damaged, actually, in this area here. Um, and this is where we're going to pass inside uh, into the town again. And we're going to walk then inside the walls the houses will be on our right hand side the walls will be on our left hand side and so we're walking on the roads within the town and we'll walk around uh, further and we get to port valenciennes which is the road that would lead to valenciennes the biggest city uh, it's about um, i suppose an hour no less half an hour away from from here um and if you had time we haven't got time on this walk but if we had time we'll be able to walk up that road and go and visit the uh, Le Quinoa Communal Cemetery Extension, which is the Commonwealth War Graves uh, Extension here. And sadly, this is where we'd find quite a lot of the men that died in the fighting, and we the estimates vary considerably. But I don't think I'm going to go for about 90, about 90 outright deaths in the fighting, and uh, uh, some of those are buried in this, uh, in this cemetery. There's actually 126 burials, but some of them uh, are soldiers who died in German hands. There was quite a, a big prisoner of war camp here, uh, uh, this has been used throughout the war as part of the route taking uh, soldiers back out of uh, France into Belgium and then across into Germany um, and some of them were used for working parties here and, and remained here for a while and certainly we have uh, we have soldiers who were dying of various uh, either wounds or diseases 
and buried in the German cemetery, but they were then centralised and brought to uh, the Le Quinoa Camino Cemetery extension. Always worthwhile going have a have a look at those, uh, especially with the men that died on the 4th of November fighting here. And then we're going to carry on walking through the town to another bastion. This is called Bastion Caesar. And this one is definitely worth a look at because we can see part of the history of it going even further back to the 16th century. And really was looking at this, the beginning of firearms and artillery. And we can see artillery embrasures. In other words, the points where guns were uh, used to fire through the walls, through the gaps in the walls. And these had been uh, covered over by Vauban's improvements. Um, and they decided to remove part of the Vauban improvements, the brick improvements. And we can see part of that, that earlier history of the of the ramparts here. So there's a, there's a whole load of history to look at in the town itself. The, the next thing, as we walk up uh, Rue George V, so a name relative to the Great War again, um, and we will see something called Catherine Lowendell. Uh, and it's an old infantry barracks, about 120 metres long, uh, and built to withstand mortar bombs. And these would be the, the great big cast mortar bombs, sometimes full of explosives, not the bombs that we recognise of the First World War. These are big spherical uh, uh, bombs that were fired from um, old-fashioned mortars. Um, and so uh, it's a lovely building to look at. It's now been completely renovated and uh, is used for... Uh, uh, for homes and also for businesses. Uh, nice to see it, it being uh, being used. And then the final bastion that we're going to look at is Port de Flamangerie. <laughs> that might that sounds like it might be right. Flamangerie. Who knows? Um, and um, that's uh, yeah, that's the final one. They're, they're all quite similar these, but in various states of uh, repair or disrepair. And this one again is is better than the previous one, but isn't isn't brilliant. Uh, but it's all worth looking at and. This walk that we're doing now it would normally take us about, well, if you're stopping and starting like I normally do, well over two hours to walk right, right round the town. Uh, there's a, a different walk that takes you right round the outside of the ramparts as well. So there's multiple different ways you can you can, uh, you can can walk uh, walk the, the whole site. I've just got a, 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 a section here just with the, the figures on. So casualties for the second and fourth uh, rifles, they lost about 180 men. Now, in this case, lost means casualties. Uh, so uh, normally a third of those would, would be uh, outright, killed outright. So I, I think 90 is probably a fairly accurate figure or as accurate as you're going to get it. And that's in the second and fourth rifles. They are the, the attacking battalions, the assaulting battalions. Uh, the fourth rifles, who were the first people over the, uh, the walls, they captured uh, 700 uh, Germans, four field guns and 45 machine guns. So you can see that an awful lot of equipment being captured. Uh, at this point, something we haven't talked about is the state of the Germans here. Well, the Germans, this is the big problem at this part of the war. Some Germans will fight on to the end and an awful a lot of them will quite happily uh, when when they feel it's a good time to, to surrender. Um, but that's the problem. You didn't know which you were going to face. Uh, and that's why we have an awful lot of casualties during the 100 days, even though most Germans would have been aware that they, they're going to lose the war and the war is over. But some are quite happy to fight on right to, to the to the end. So the figures for the New Zealand division uh, in its in entirety during this uh, this action, uh, they travelled 10 kilometres, so they captured 10 kilometres of ground uh, on this day. Uh, 2,450 prisoners in total and 60 field guns. So it was a very, very successful final action for the New Zealand uh, forces. 
seen as such an important one that the French president, Raymond uh, Poincare, he came out only six days after the action uh, and uh, a New Zealand guard of honour was paraded for him in the uh, town square. So where we started the tour and where we're going to finish it, uh, this is where the New Zealand guard of honour paraded for the French president six days after the action. And I, I think it gives you an idea of how important it was seen at the time. There's also another connection to uh, to Australia in a way. At Villas Bretonneux, we have the Victoria School. Well, here the school is named after Lieutenant Averill. So he is uh, commemorated in the naming of the school in the town as well. So a little bit like the Victoria School in Villas Bretonneux for Australia. Pete, it's always extraordinary when you see the returns for these battles in 1918. I know the Germans were effectively beaten by this stage, so they were not putting up as big a fight as they would have in the earlier stages of the war. But look at that, 2,450 prisoners taken for the loss of only 180 men. So about 15 to 1. And that's just the prisoners. That doesn't count the men killed and wounded as well. So the, 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 the blow that we were giving the German army at this stage, it's always worth remembering. I mean, I think we've moved on from the whole stabbed in the back narrative that the Nazis pushed pretty hard in the Second World War. But the German army was soundly defeated during the First World War. In, in those closing days of 1918, really in the second half of 1918, the German army was soundly defeated. And you can just see that in the, the number of men captured. I mean, they only would have been held in prison camps for a month or so before they would have been released. But um, just the numbers of men taken, killed, prisoners, guns, machine guns, that they were just being swept aside by the advancing allies. Absolutely extraordinary. And this is a perfect example of, of a small action, but demonstrating how that would work. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, isn't it? In my youth, uh, when I first became very interested in, in the Great War, there were very few books on the 100 days, on this last kind of phase of the of the Great War, because it's almost like we were we were so concentra- concentrating on the horror and all the, the terrible aspects of it that nobody really wanted to talk about the success. And it's only in recent years, there's there's loads and loads of books now written about that, that last 100 days, and so we can get a really good idea of what was going on. But for a young man you know, in the in, in the seventies trying to discover what 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 went on in the uh, towards the end of the war, what caused the end of the war, was it was it us or was it just it was almost you were kind of got the feeling it was just exhaustion that everybody was just had enough and eventually the war finished because we'd just had enough and that's not the case at all. It is a very very successful uh, hundred days that will that will eventually force the Germans to uh, to ask for uh, call for an armistice. Well, Pete, a very successful 100 days and a very successful one day that we've spent walking around uh, the town of Le Quenoir. Thank you so much. It's a, it's a wonderful sight. Uh, I have not been here on the ground. And again, we're adding to our extensive list of places you're going to take me when eventually I can come back to the battlefields in about 15 years or so from yeah. now, I think it will be. Uh, you're going to need a, at least a, a few months, Matt, a few months. That list is getting very long. <laughs> Mate, I can't wait. I'm really looking forward to it. so much great stuff to see. And I hope that, that you listening have enjoyed uh, hearing us walk around as well. But Pete, just absolutely fascinating. And thank you so much for sharing it with us. Pleasure, Matt. Very enjoyable. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you could subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.